Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, you know, go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. As long as I stand to face the crowd, to to be soft when they boo 
Natalie Merring is a gifted and prolific musician, songwriter, and singer based in Los Angeles, California. After spending her formative years in Pennsylvania with her family in a deeply Christian household, Merring explored her love of music at school in the Pacific Northwest, playing in noisy bands, and eventually writing and recording music under variations of her current artistic name, Wise Blood. Often categorized as making chamber pop, psychedelic folk, or soft rock, Marion continues to defy any simple signifiers with her thoughtfully written and ambitious-sounding new album. It's called And in the Darkness, Hearts Aglow. It's out on November 18th, 2022 via Sub Pop Records. And it prompted Natalie and I to have a good talk about her West Coast and East Coast lives, sports, and Ping pong. I realize ping pong is a sport, but I wrote sports and ping pong, and I can't now. I have to say that sports and ping pong. Her upbringing and relationship to God as a concept. Her interest in the tale of narcissists, consumer capitalism, and perspectives on social media and the internet generally. The pandemic and selfishness. How such things inform her new album. The influence of older siblings. How the Kids in the Hall and Scott Thompson in particular altered her forever, her unique sound, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control, which is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into making this podcast. Thanks for supporting the show at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and uh, the friendliest staff ever who will happily help you find the things you're looking for. Say you want to order the brand new Wise Blood record and in the darkness, Hearts Aglow. That's what it's called. You go over to blackbird.ca, type it in, try to order it. I'm sure you can. That's what you do. Go to blackbird.ca for more info about how to do that. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 733 of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant Natalie Merring of Wiseblood with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Natalie, how's it going? It's going really great, Vish. Nice to have you on the show. I'm a, I'm a fan of yours. It's uh, it's lovely to have you on the show and talk about this great new record of yours. Uh, first of all, where in the world are you today? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, nice. Now you are a California person. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I live um, in California, and I was born here. Now some people they they move. You decided not to move. You're ensconced. Is it fair to say you're ensconced? Is that too severe a word? Do you feel ensconced? Well, I'll be honest. I moved when I was 11 
to the East Coast and I had a long phase out there. So I'm not fully ensconced. I definitely <laughs> did my journey elsewhere. Uh-huh. But I came back eventually because I did kind of want to reconcile with my childhood and, and, and kind of this place that I'm technically from because all my relatives and grandparents and, you know, their mm. parents are from here too. I think I'm like sixth generation Californian or something, which is very rare and wow. random. Yeah. Well, uh, the so very pioneer historically, or, or at least in sort of in the literature and films, people migrate to California from elsewhere. That seems to be a trend. They head west. Uh, what drew you east for even that brief period? My dad got a job that he took. Oh, <laughs> simple, as S- <laughs> simple as that. You, you you almost had no agency in the move. Is that what you're kind of saying? No, I was I was 11 years old, so I was just going with the flow. I see. And whereabouts did you reside? In Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Ah. It's like kind of northwest of uh, Philadelphia. You know, Pennsylvania. Or northeast, actually. Been, been in the news a lot for the politics as we're speaking. Uh, were you were you uh, observing that? What, were you, what, what well, did you yeah. make of the result? I, I felt maybe that I should have registered to vote out there and mm-hmm. kept my Pennsylvania identity, but I'm a Californian now, so. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Did you enjoy your time in Pennsylvania? Like you say, you were there for a time. Uh, Eleven years old, I think, is what you said. And then, how long were you actually there? It was really. It was kind of a culture shock. I was there until I was like 19, um, mm. and then I kind of moved around all the all over the East Coast, but. Yeah, it was very different from Southern California. And at first I was pretty fascinated, you know, that I got to ride the bus and I, I saw falling snow for the first time. And there are all these really weird classic things about the East Coast that we didn't really have in Los Angeles. But it was so culturally different that I think it kind of set the tone for me to become a weirdo because I just started playing guitar and just going deep into my own zone. Mm. Versus I wasn't, you know, joining the field hockey team or, you know, like getting really East Coast about it. I was kind of like, hmm. (laughs) Do you feel that sports are an East Coast concern or do you have a predilection for sports if you're on the East Coast as opposed to to laid back California? I think there's just different sports. Ah. I think in in California, you're more, it's like soccer and, you know, maybe surfing or. um, Yeah you know, tennis or something. But I feel like the East Coast was very much like field hockey, lacrosse, and like, it was different. Grittier team sports, and in a sense. I mean, some of the California sports you described, or alluded to, I should say, fairly individual in their own ways. You have a little team sometimes. Your tennis player, you're pretty much on your own. Uh, I don't remember what else you said. But uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some, some to it that is everyone's galvanized. Where, are you an athletic person, or are you, do you have an affinity for sports at all? I have a badminton situation in my yard. I really like, I like some racket sports, but I'm not good and I don't um, watch avidly. No. Um, I'll watch some basketball sometimes. I think I'm more like, I don't want to be somebody that hates sports because I, I can see that there's something, um, there's some kind of sport charisma that can cross over, you know, athletic charisma that can cross over with, you know, any kind of art. Um, mm. even though it's so different, I do think that it, it can transcend its medium, but I don't have a super athletic, yeah, vibe. No, well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know about the no. vibe per se, but sometimes people have little hidden, not hidden, but like things they don't, you know, uh, what, what happened recently on that show, uh, 
Office Hours live uh, with your friend Tim Heidecker many months ago now. I guess it has been a few months, but they had uh, members of Pavement, Stephen Malcolmus, and I believe it was my my friend Bob Nastanovich as well. They did a doubles match uh, against Tim Heidecker, and I want to say it was Doug. And anyway, for some people, I, I think those of us who follow Pavement, do you know that band Pavement very well? Do you know that band? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. So I've been a lifelong uh, pavement fan. I mean, for most of my life, I should say. So I knew they had a predilection for competition among other bands, and they liked sports, watching them, talking about them sometimes. But it was fascinating to actually watch members of pavement engage in tennis and discover that Malk, Malcolmus is good. We, I think some of us were like, yeah, that makes sense. He's like some sort of weird savant. Anyway... It's, yeah, he'd it would, be good at tennis. Yeah, for probably sure. if anyone's going to be good at tennis and pavement, you'd put your money on Malcolmus. Uh, so that's what I was thinking the whole time. Anyway, what I'm getting at is you might have like things you do on your own, cards, card games, sports, like competition things. That's all I'm getting at. Do you have anything like that? Uh, a little competitive edge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ping pong. I can. I can beat people at ping pong. I get really <laughs> excited about that. Um, I am competitive. For sure, but I also like I'm I'm kind of a sore loser. Mm. I like games. I like charades and you know stuff that's like more brainy. Yes, and I yes. would say that ping ping pong is kind of brainy. Uh, you don't have to use your body that much. So absolutely, I loved ping pong. I, I objected. I got a ping pong table for my birthday from my parents, and I objected. I thought that was <laughs> I didn't ask for it. You know, they were always given me things that I didn't ask for, and I was an ungrateful gift getter. I don't know if you can relate to that in any way. When they didn't, it's like, you don't even know me. That's how I felt yeah. as a kid. Yeah, no, my mom kept trying to make me more basic, and she would get me really girly basic stuff for Christmas, and it would always be this big debacle, and eventually I would just give it to her. Hmm. And at some, a certain point, I was like, are you buying stuff for yourself? <laughs> it's. I think as I my son is in piano lessons, which I was never allowed to have. Uh, they really discouraged my interest in music, and then you do worry. I do. Sorry, I shouldn't say you. Uh, parents, I am self aware enough to be like, am I just trying to give my kids the childhood I wish I had? Like I, I worry about that sometimes uh, myself. And it sounds like your mother had maybe a bit of like when you say she was just getting stuff she wanted. There's probably a little, like, I wish I'd had this when I was a kid. Do you think that was there? Yeah, I think she probably thought I was pretty ungrateful. <laughs> no, no, but I mean about, do you oh. think she was trying to create a little version of herself with you and give her the things she regretted not having? Give you oh, the- Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of that's course, what it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that Definitely. Is, yeah, that's the tangled web of parenting. It's like, you're trying to be in the moment and present, but your whole history- is staring at you because they're a little reflection. Sorry, you, I assume you don't. Do you have children? I do not. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to uh, uh, put my whole uh, parent trap on onto you. This is none of your concern. No, I can. I'm really good at imagining how other people might feel, so I can imagine that that's um, <laughs> that's really difficult, and it's also hard because the pendulum always swings. You know, it's like yeah, I think children have that tendency because. I was raised relatively conservative, but my friends that were raised in like, you know, super like lefty liberal households, sometimes they kind of swing. Yeah. Everybody just kind of flip flops. Yeah. Yeah. You reject. I think you, I have found that I spent a good chunk of my teens and twenties and some of my thirties trying to purposefully reject a lot of the things my parents put on me. But now that I've gotten older, I'm like, Oh, 
this is kind of why they did some of that stuff. I'm not saying I'm becoming them, but I'm starting to relate more to them as as I get older and as I'm a parent now. Um, I'm sh- sure you've talked to people who can relate to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you invoked um, religion because I thought of a, a song on this beautiful new album of yours. Congratulations, I should say right off the... It's, not, it's too late for this to be right off the top, but congratulations on this brilliant new record. I, I hope you're pleased with it. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wonderful. You were talking about your religious upbringing, and I couldn't help but think of this song, God Turned Me Into a Flower, um, because that and songs like, uh, I think it doesn't, not the one preceding it. Here it is. Uh, Children of the Empire. I feel like you're actually reflecting a little bit uh, about the current state of affairs a lot on this record and how we relate to one another and maybe why we relate to one another. But I hear a lot of autobiography, or sorry, I don't know you well enough to know that is autobiography, but I get the sense that this is a particularly autobiographical uh, batch of songs uh, about how you're relating to the world and reflecting upon your experiences. Um, Is that a fair assessment of where these songs are coming from? Definitely. I think that I went really intimate and kind of vulnerable on this record. The lockdown kind of inspired a more deep dive into, you know, intimacy and the relationship between big macro uh, things happening and kind of the microcosmic effect they have. Yeah. You mentioned this conservative and I think religious background or upbringing that you had. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? Yeah. 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 So when you invoke God, knowing what I know of you, I wonder what it means to you to invoke the figure of God. And just so people understand, there's this song called God Turned Me Into a Flower. And if it's okay with you, Natalie, I want to just recite the first verse into what is ostensibly the chorus. Is that permissible for you, to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so for people following along at home, as long as I stand to face the crowd, to know my name, to know its sound, it's good to be soft when they push you down. Oh God, turn me into a flower. Now, as we're speaking, there are a lot of artists who are being more outspoken about what it means to be a performing artist right now. The gruel of it, uh, the the health and safety aspects of being a touring musician. And this is my interpretation uh, that some of these songs seem to me to be you conveying feelings about what it means to exist in this socially mediated world, but also as a musician, as someone who's trying to make a go of it. Is any of that present in what I just read? Definitely. Yeah. And, and it was, it was personal, but I also kind of hoped that most people could relate to it because we've all had to become um, so public, you know, like no matter what your vocation is or what you're doing, I think a lot of people feel pressure to promote themselves on social media. Mm. And, you know, there's definitely industries where you don't have to do that as much, but it just kind of feels like it's, it's, everything is kind of going in that direction. Yeah. I mean, even my parents have made a TikTok video. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this this is so where, I just think that it's it's about me, but I would hope also that people do feel like, you know, a lot of people feel like they're kind of facing a crowd now by just having to be so so public. Yeah, so when I first, when I read the verse and when I listened to you sing it, I can't help but picture a singer on stage, but you're I think you're astutely suggesting everyone feels like they're on a stage right now and they don't know maybe who they are or, or who they're supposed to be. Later on in the same song, 
the verse, the closing verse is, you see the reflection and you want it more than the truth. You yearn to be that thing you could never get to because the person on the other side has always just been you. That to me is more of, that to me, right, is like the social media aspect. And then again, oh God, turn me into a flower. So I, I hope this isn't too muddled. I think what I just read is an extension of what you just said. I wonder if you can expand upon what you're trying to get at with this stuff uh, in terms of how we're currently living and processing things. But again, this notion of, oh, God turned me into a flower coming from you, I can't help but think about that a lot, given where you come from and what that, I don't even know how that relates to the verses on some level. And I I hope I'm not being too dogmatic or uh, heavy-handed with this stuff, but can you speak to these things a little bit? Yeah, so, I mean, the song is really actually based on the myth of narcissus. Mm-hmm. Um, I read The Culture of Narcissism by Charles Losh, and I just really felt that narcissism is kind of a huge part of the culture. Um, and it's not narcissism like we traditionally think about it, like people just being obsessed with themselves. Yeah. The real story of narcissus was that he became obsessed with a reflection that he didn't even realize was himself. Mm-hmm. So he thought it was something else. And I think that's very symbolic for kind of the aspirationalism and the kind of frontier seeking that our culture has where we think, oh, it's just a matter of technology that's going to be able to conquer nature or just like if I only had what that other person had or if I only have this relationship or if I only had this job or if my face only looked this way, Mm -hmm. you know, we're kind of constantly seeking some kind of transcendence from ourselves when in reality it's like, we can never conquer nature unless we conquer ourselves and we could never be happy in a relationship unless we loved ourselves. You know, that's very like, unfortunately cliche, but very true Hmm. that I think, you know, a lot of people, yeah, they're kind of constantly seeking for some kind of salve for themselves and going externally. And that's like a very Western culture thing versus kind of going internally. And at the end of the myth, God turns Narcissus into a flower, not as a curse, but kind of as a like, you need to be soft because the rigidity of an obsession with a specific outcome is basically like death. You know, mm. if you think of a leaf that's dead, it's very brittle, yeah. it's very rigid. But life is about being soft and pliable and kind of going with the the movement of these changes. So I think it, it's kind of like a beautiful remedy for what we're all going through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's kind of cathartic too with some of the climate change stuff that I was thinking about also, like on top of all the just humanity stuff, just this feeling of, you know, returning to nature and becoming something soft enough enough to handle some kind of cataclysmic moment that we all kind of feel strangely closer to than ever before. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of layers to the meaning of it, but um, invoking God on my part, I think, I think I still have like a little God-shaped hole like within my soul having been raised that way and it it didn't feel like I was invoking a Christian God or like, you know, a Catholic God. It just kind of felt like, you know, generally this idea of like a higher power. But it it did feel ballsy to use the word and it felt good. But I think it's one of those things now where like we're all kind of over it. Like nobody needs to um, shy away from the concept of God because the alternative, I think, accidentally in our culture when we kind of basically, you know, wiped out religion as being like a good thing Mm. is consumer capitalism kind of became low key, the new religion, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. 
um, which I don't think is a really great spiritual practice. So there's a lot of stuff baked into why I chose to use the word. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you answering it with some candor because I know that must be a difficult question. Again, I'm just, I think the narrative around you is you were raised one way and came to reject it. Is that too banal or is that accurate, would you say? Like you you rejected some of that um, heightened religious and uh, conservatism, I guess, in your in your childhood and your upbringing. Is that, is that fair? You know, yeah. Like I think I rejected the dogmatic qualities of Christianity and kind of like the perversion of the church, which I think we can all agree the church has done some very oppressive, dark stuff, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like, I don't want to throw the cat out with the bath water. Like, yeah. Or is it the baby with the bath? Water? The cat the cats don't go in the bath. They don't tend to like yeah, the bath water. They don't like baths. No, okay, they so it's flee. the baby in yeah. the bath water. Yeah. But the babies love it and for some reason there's an expression about not throwing babies away. It's a very weird yeah. expression. So you were right to get it a bit muddled. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's kind of the sentiment is like, yeah, we don't want to disregard the unseen or the invisible forces or, or things that are kind of beyond the scope of our understanding. Yeah. I think they're they're also really important and the concept of grace and salvation and unconditional love and all these things are really valuable for our psychology and coping with reality. And kind of post-religion, I did get really into Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, who are more like scholars who studied myths and religion and the archetypes of them and kind of wove a tapestry of the connection and the thread that exists between them Mm -hmm. and how that can actually be very meaningful. And like the disparate cultures that kind of came up with their own version of a very similar concept. And so it's like, you shouldn't throw the archetype away. Yeah. You shouldn't throw the story away, but it's like, unfortunately the damage that has been done in the name of God makes it kind of embarrassing for people. I think. Well, I I think it's fascinating that you suggested that in the absence of religion, um, the new, and I, I, I assume most people view it as a false God is consumer capitalism. Like that's fascinating in itself because Again, within the context of this record, I think you're making several allusions to some of the things we've already been talking about, people's, the way they relate to themselves and other people using technology. And there's a narrative that's emerged that blames the technology, that blames, uh, there's, there was a very notable, um, documentary about the damage of social, the, the true damage that social media is doing on, uh, generations of people, really. But I wonder what you make of the fact that these things wouldn't exist if the creators didn't think that we had something within us that they could tap into, some needs. Like you invoke narcissists, and that's that's fair, and I appreciate your distinction between it. But do you think the same way people tend to like look to and put their faith in God or something just to get them through their day? And even if you're an atheist, there's probably some internal faith thing that you're just relying on to get you through each day. I think these days, in the absence of widespread and galvanized religious movements, there are, it's very hard. This is why we're so fractured. But do you think it's weird <laughs> that we continue to blame the entities that uh, people are choosing to follow as opposed to like, what's wrong with us? What's going on within us? Because I hear more of that introspection and exploration in these songs. Like, It's Not Me, It's Everybody is an amazingly succinct way of capturing what we're going through right now. But do you think we're looking within enough or looking at human behavior enough or just blaming 
the very religion or social media as the reason everything's gone awry. Because I do you know where I'm coming from? Like that seems to generally be what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's a really good point. It's like what and and this kind of comes up a lot. I think now there's like so much mental health stuff where it's like you just got to get your mental health together. Like you just got to learn how to communicate your emotions and my friend calls it Ted core where it's like these Ted talks about how to deal with, you know, your personality disorder. But it's like at the same time, there's also these huge structural things happening with algorithms and and the way that we're kind of communicating that it's so artificial that how could you not have a personality disorder? So it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, and, and what's also very difficult is because these things do kind of feed into our natural instincts it's like we're all willingly participating in kind of the gridlocked carceral nature of the technology. It's, it's, um, have you ever yeah. heard the term panopticon? Yeah, I've heard it. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like we're all like willingly being surveilled. Like nobody yeah. is being like changed to this. This isn't going against our will. So it is, it is more nuanced. And I think that's why it would involve more conversations to understand like the power. I don't think kind of like nuclear power, I don't think we really, understood in Silicon Valley, basically the vastness and the kind of power that comes with this kind of technology in combination, in tandem with our propensities as human beings. And that's kind of, you know, the balance where everything seems to go awry is kind of like, yeah, just feeling like this is almost like too powerful for who we really are and what we can really handle. Yeah, And that, yeah, I'm not, I don't assume that everybody's a saint and I actually don't believe that, you know, people are benevolent from birth. I, I think that we, we maybe generally side towards benevolence, but I think there's also a darkness to humanity and, and like a seedy kind of underbelly that will always be there and exist. I guess the problem is like in terms of technology, just how to keep the technology biologically in line with, with, you know, the best outcome of our mental intelligence versus the worst. And I think right now it's just kind of leaning towards the worst outcome. Um, Yes. And and I do think that that's ignorance, you know, it comes from like a lack of observation and a lack of, of really kind of looking at the reality of, of what we've created. Mm. Um, I think people are overly positive. I think about it. Overly, overly positive. Interesting. Cause I, I feel like there's more pushback against these things. Where does that positive, where do you think that, um, positivity that you allude to kind of emanates from? I think it comes from the fact that it's so beneficial for, for people who are like trying to make money. Um, oh, right. I would say everybody kind of does lip service to how negative it is, but there's no like mass movement or boycott or, you know, most people are just kind of complicit. So as much as there is this pushback, I think it's, that's kind of this new thing Hmm. that people are realizing how it's not great for mental health, how it's really bad for like teenagers and things like that. But I think in general, there's still, um, this optimism with commerce about it, where it's like most companies are kind of shifting towards like really trying to tap into the zoomer mentality and really trying to tap into, yeah, kind of writing the algorithms and writing the, the technology to make as much money as possible. And they're not turning away from it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you invoke the Zoomer, the Zoomer algorithms. And I also think that with all of the technology, there's this primacy of youth. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on young people. As you and I are speaking, uh, your U.S. midterm results are still coming in. 
but there's been overwhelming evidence that uh, what are what I guess is Generation Z, Gen Z, uh, mm-hmm. came through for the for the Democratic Party and and voted in in large numbers. But you have a song here called I, I wanted your thoughts on this because you have a song I alluded to it earlier, Children of the Empire. Once again, I would like to recite some of this for the people uh, listening. We tend to live long, that's why so many things go wrong. People selling the young blood, I guess that's the price you pay. Make desire, but no one wins. Won't the fire burn us in? Before we get a chance to love again, children understand that they pay for their sins, seize control of what they made. Before we all fade away, children of the empire want to change. I don't know if what I just read is connected to what I prefaced it with. Can you speak to the pressure of that we're putting on young people to fix everything that <laughs> the boomers have ruined? Um, because I feel a little bit of, of that in, in these lyrics. Am I way off base? No, I, I think that's definitely in there. I, I think it's kind of like it also stems from just this feeling of like, you know, if we were put in that position, the context of the boomers, would we have done any different? Like, is this just the way humanity is that they just got so lucky kind of surfing on the biggest wave of natural resources of all time that they just don't even have the headspace for the kind of future and reality that we're confronted with? Yeah. So I don't, I don't get angry at the boomers or blame them, but it is like, it's hard to have this realization that you might not be able to have the life your parents had, or you won't be able to give necessarily the life that you had as a kid to your children. Yeah. Um, because things have just shifted so dramatically. So I think that, you know, there is kind of this, this feeling of like cleaning up a really big, crazy, messy party. But at the same time, it's like, maybe we would have thrown the same party, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. There, there, you're absolutely correct there. And you've invoked like earlier, I was talking about how we blame the machines and we don't look inward or we blame certain uh, religious and orthodoxy and we don't look inward. And you invoked blame there, too. There's a lot of blaming of other people for problems. <laughs> And and you're right, I think, to think like, well, what would we have done if in in these times? I feel like that's a major component of the way we're living right now is is just trying to find who's at fault at all times and not really thinking about the the context. Is that is that swimming around in what you were just talking about? Definitely, because I think you know, with the way that the 20th century and the 21st century have played out, it's like everything kind of shifts gears a little bit you know, even just stylistically or however, which way every like 10 or now every five years almost. So it's like, there is this falsehood that like all the generations are somehow different and they are. And there's definitely differences. I notice even with kids that are just like two or three years younger than me, which is crazy. Probably because I sided more with Gen Xers. I have an older brother Mm. and I always just sided with that generation by accident. But I think, (laughs) yeah, I think when you put it into context, you kind of realize that like biologically, I don't think we've really changed that much. Mm -hmm. I I do think we have changed a little bit. I think that, you know, plastic and crazy food stuff has made, you know, younger generations like not hormonally as like hardy as previous generations. Like I really deeply believe that. I found out recently too that like, testosterone has been going down 1% yeah. since 1980. Yeah. 
that's real. You know, like that's not like fake news. That's, that's real. So it's like, there are actual differences, but there at the same time, I just think that if you were born in a different time, you know, you could have, you could have been the same person and uh, the same as, as, you know, a boomer or like a Gen Xer. Like, I think it's so much about, you know, the nature first nurture, like nurture has such a big part of it. Yeah. And, and coming of age at this time, you know, like, you know, kind of millennials getting blamed for being helicopter children who are like overly sensitive. I mean, it might be because we might, as the youngest batch of kids in the boomers, like nobody talks about the youngest really getting the short end of the stick, but they do get a weird end of the stick. You know, it's like, you know, I was kind of raised by other kids because I was the youngest kid. So I, I was kind of left with the older siblings and the weird cousins. And, you know, I was treated you know, pretty weirdly. And I turned out kind of strange. And and the whole time everybody was telling me, Oh, the youngest is so spoiled or like you guys, you got all of our parents attention. And, you know, but at the same time, it's like, it, it wasn't necessarily, um, yeah. Well, basically what I'm trying to say is there's like for each generation, there's going to be reasons they are the way they are. And, to say that millennials or zoomers are like overly sensitive and lazy is just half of it. You know, like that's, that's a pretty keen observation. But if you look a little deeper, like maybe they're actually just like depressed and disappointed and disillusioned. Yeah. And we're told about a future that they would have that doesn't actually exist. Or maybe they, you know, watch too many movies or I just think it comes from, you know, not really understanding reality. Like maybe we got the most false version of reality out of everybody or something. Well, I can corroborate that as a parent of two children, one eleven, one seven, I am starting to feel like the seven year old Ramona got the short shrift and we and then the pandemic happened. When sorry, brief context. I'm from Ontario. My family and I are from Ontario, but my uh, rather, my wife is from here in Edmonton, Alberta, originally. And so we moved at the end of 2019, and my daughter was five. And I, and because of the pandemic and the movement, I think we there's been a gap in reading, spelling, these sorts of things. And then I, but I've also just thought about how I would read to my son. And so anyway, this is very maybe a personal experience, but it does ring true what you're saying. Like we kind of, I think subconsciously that my son helped raise my, my daughter in a way like that sounds crazy. But what I'm saying is she had someone to look up to closer to her age. And he just had, they just had us to look up to. So <laughs> like the, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting at there. You, you do tend to follow the, the, the older siblings, uh, as a, yeah. as a young person, that's what you're saying happened to you. I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I kind of sided with them and they become little mini I, parents, like somehow, I don't know how to, I know that someone's going to roll their eyes at this, but they kind of do right. Like little role models. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, but it's, it's, it gets sketchy when like kids are teaching kids how to live. Cause it's like, they don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I have one story. I have one story. Cause I feel like I keep alluding to stuff and I should just say one story. Like a good example would be, I was getting taken care of by all my cousins. I was maybe like three years old and one of my cousins cut off all my hair and shoved it in my diaper. Oh, and I, I was like wandering around 
scratching my diaper until my uncle was like, what is up? <laughs> well, and he just looked in there and was like, whoa. But yeah, that's like a good example of like, I was like the the experiment that like, like let's experiment on the baby, oh, you know? Man. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound, I mean, that sounds relatively benign, but also cruel, if I may say. Uh, no, no judgment. But I, oh yeah, no, no. I think when you're the youngest, there's there's some bully bully vibes, no doubt. Cousins are if you don't have an older sibling, you have older cousins. Like I've talked about this many times. Like my older cousin, when I was like five or six, played me a Beatles tape, played me Led Zeppelin, The Police, whatever it was in the early '80s, and uh, that's why you and I are talking right now. Like that is the thing that put me on this. Like I was like, what is this Beatles band? And then read everything, uh, watched everything, listened to every record, like a research kid, like uh, from a young age, just like wanted, wanting, just voraciously wanting to learn things. And so all I'm getting at is your parents are fine. Everyone's parents are just fine. But you need an older cousin or a friend who can guide you into it, like what's cool, I think. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. It does. But then in the case of me being so overly influenced by my brother who is 11 years older, I have difficulty relating to people my age where they were more kind of raised on the internet. So they're like referencing things that happened on Tumblr like 10 years ago. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And then as soon as I get around people that are like 10 years older than me, it's like we're on the same page. Ah. And that is also like... Okay, so you are weird. You're weird. That's disorienting. (laughs) You're a little weird. I I would say there's like a cutoff point too, where it's like, I, I think that, you know, with the internet, there's this weird cutoff point where it's like, you do reach this point where all of a sudden culture is just like exponentially shifted over into the internet zone. Yeah. And that's, it's... Very different. It's like a paradigm shift. Well, I, there's a Chuck Klosterman. Do you know that Chuck Klosterman fella? I do not. He's a kind of a pop culture writer uh, guy. He writes these interesting books, and his last one was about the '90s. And he he wrote an, he writes these essays, just like sort of like I say, goes deep into whatever he's interested in music, movies. But he has this chapter about uh, how, and I represent this generation. There's a generation that remembers what life was like before the internet and the advent of the internet. And so we, I, I am in that generation. Like the internet, let's safely say came around 94, 95, I think 1994, 1995. You were what? You were born in like 88. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So you were, you're not on the internet. You're, I'm guessing, uh, when it's first starting, but I remember distinctly my high school librarian being like, there's this new thing that I've installed and it's, it was, he was showing me how to use the internet and he liked me cause I kind of took to it. I kind of enjoyed it. Anyway, all of my life experience is this AB of before the internet when we didn't really know everything at the push of a button. And now everyone says they know everything and it's created like a kind of false intellectualism where everyone's just like an expert on everything. And it's a weird, it's a, I'm a weird, I represent a generation that is this weird cyborg of like, I remember when you had to wait and learn and be patient about things. And now you don't really have that. And I think it's affected people's personalities. Like you're talking kind of in a, in a, I think a relatively uh, benign way about just feeling like some people's pop culture references are different based on their uh, interaction with the internet. But I would argue it has actually created I bet our brains are evolving differently. You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah, no, I I fully agree. And I I do see too, like, um, as much as I 
you know, kind of remember the very tail end of pre-internet stuff. I remember it really clearly because it was noticeably more chill. Yeah. 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 No, I just kind of felt like everything you discovered just felt so sacred and like going into a record store and combing the new arrival section and finding a weird record and not knowing anything about it. Just, there was so much mystery that it just seemed like everything was kind of magical and you were on this like magical journey of discovery. And then when you could kind of Google stuff, you know, the beginning of the internet, there was this golden age where it it was really fun and just like kind of nerds communicating. But I I think really with the advent of social media, that's when it kind of really got into people's heads of like curating these personas. And that's, I think when it went downhill. Yeah. But also the one thing I've cited recently is my mother and I have pretty strong uh, memories Meaning, um, ability, the ability to remember things, I guess is the way to put it, not just memories. And, uh, so I was telling my son or somebody the other day, when I was a kid, I would have 20 phone numbers in my head of every friend. And I didn't have them, I might have had them written down in one place, but I just knew every phone number. Now I couldn't tell you my best friend's phone number. It's just, I tell my phone and my kids do it too. They tell their devices. My daughter does it with the TV. There's a button on the remote. And you just say, put it on the Cartoon Network. And it just does it. They don't have to... My friends used to marvel. I mean, I used to know every single channel number. You know what I mean? Anyway, this is way too much about me. I just feel like our memories are also probably being impacted by this. Our ability to retain information because we think we don't need to. I'll just take a a photo of it or I'll tell my phone to just bring it up and I don't need to... Yeah, Google it. I don't need to retain anything. Is that... Google Maps. Do I sound like a nut? No, 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 no. And I, I think if you really want to get down with the level of sophistication that we are losing, I think it's most apparent when you like watch movies from the 30s and 40s and like kind of see the way that, you know, people talked. It's like generally everybody like their brain had to be pretty clever. It was a typographical culture. Yes. Everybody was reading. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty noticeable difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was I was just reflecting upon some of the things we've been discussing. And it occurs to me, having never spoken with you before, Natalie, that you seem like a very thoughtful and, and research oriented person. I don't mean to embarrass you with flattery. But do you have a if we can agree upon that? And I look I'm also just thinking about songs of yours on this new record, like The Worst is Done for example, and I, we can expand upon this in a moment um, just to get at what I'm getting at, but you seem like a very dialed in, I want to know what's going on kind of person. And if that's true, do you know where that kind of comes from for you to like read about stuff, learn things? You know, I it's interesting because I always felt like I was maybe just given some extra emotional software or something. Like I just have extra feels and I've always like... Hmm. I've always cried the world's tears or something like from a very young age, ever since I was a little girl, I I just had this weird, weird feelings about justice and like weird anti-authority vibes starting from like preschool. I was just like, if a teacher did something weird, I'd be like, well, that's not okay. You know, like I was Mm -hmm. always like trying to right some wrongs and I have no idea where that came from, Hmm. but it ended up turning into yeah, just becoming a sponge and wanting to absorb as much information as possible about the world around me to really understand, you know, why, yeah, why I felt so out of place being this like empathic person. Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, there's a mixture of just being born that way. And then having, I guess, you know, being privileged enough to be born in America and kind of grow up 
you know, in a middle class situation. Yeah. And just kind of ferociously devour information. This, um, again, the narrative about you and your upbringing is that you, it, it was religious, it was spiritual, it was a little strict. Do you have a sense, memory of when that occurred to you, good or for good or for, for better or for worse, I should say? Like, do you have a sense, memory of when you either were most aware that your house was maybe different, what was going on in your house was a bit different than others, or that, um, uh, that maybe this is kind of bullshit? Like, do you have any sense, memory of that? Yeah, I mean, it was basically around puberty. Hmm. I was like, I felt pangs of it before. Like, I always kind of felt a bit like an outsider. Yeah. But then I think when I hit puberty, I was really like, oh, no, no, no way. I'm not going to be able to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, 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 I would, I would argue the stuff. same. My parents moved from India to Canada, but would just fervently suggest India was the best country in the world and fervently suggest, uh, uh, Hinduism was the way and the light. Oh, sorry. I, I think I've paraphrased another religion there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way, the truth, and the light. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Hinduism is this, and you should marry an Indian woman. They didn't even say a person. You know, they just, I think at some point as a teenager, puberty, you start to be like, hang on a second. And then, like I said, in my own trajectory, it was teens, twenties, most of my thirties being like, I know what I'm, the oppositional force in my life is still that, and I'm still pushing against that until finally, like I say, I'm starting to soften finally. Do you reckon that where the way you were raised thought you, in a, in a bizarre way, uh, brought you to a place where you thought more critically, uh, because of what you were being asked to, to swallow and accept? For sure. I mean, if you have to denounce something that's like the culture of your household and, and the way you're raised, then yeah, you got to think really critically because you're kind of stepping out of a, a very safe zone Yeah, and going out and exploring something completely independent. And yeah, it was almost like I had to become a little adult from a very young age, just feeling the philosophical kind of juxtaposition with my parents. And, and when you have to grow up that fast, I do think, yeah, you kind of become a little bit more street smart or something. Yeah. And it's funny to make this about Canada. I actually remember one of the big reasons I really questioned Christianity is I was such a huge fan of the kids in the hall. Oh yes, that's right. And I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really loved Scott Thompson. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I think gay people are like closer to God. Like, I don't <laughs> think it's an abomination. Like this can't like, that was actually the first big tip for me was just like, how homophobic the church was. I was like, this makes no sense. So I have read this about you. I don't know if you know this. Of course you probably don't. You don't know me at all, but I'm a, I'm such a huge kids in the hall fan. Um, and I had, uh, Kevin and Bruce and Scott have all been on this show three, three or four times each or something like that. Most recently, uh, Dave and Kevin were on to talk about their Amazon series, but Scott and I have become friendly over the years and he's been on a number of times. So, um, I love him. I, I love him so much. Uh, and I, it means a lot to, I, I, I remember reading this about you and I was like, wow, of all the people, <laughs> Scott and the kids in the hall, uh, was a sort of a game changer for you. Um, was it hard for you to, was it like contraband to get to watch Kids in the Hall in your house? 
No, I think my mom knew. It, they were like my boy band. It was like versus in <laughs> sync or Backstreet Boys. I was like, I love the kids in the hall, and I'd print out pictures of them and make collages. And my mom was like, Oh yeah, they're cute. You know, like she knew what, what the deal was. But I, I mean, every once in a while, she'd see a sketch and be like, That's that's not right. Or, you know, like they had some some intense material. But like I I I would just tape off um, Comedy Central, and so I had VHS tapes of all the episodes i had captured on tv and oh, i would just watch it over that's, and over again so you're a part of that that's interesting cuz that's where they learned is that when comedy central started to repeat the show it found a whole new audience and then that's like well after they were kind of done um so you're a part of that crew you're you're a part of the reason they sort of maintained activity so thank you i'm the yeah the comedy central rerun crew yes i think that's happened with a few different shows so that's that's amazing comedy i i get the sense that you're a clever uh uh writer and like like a like i said earlier i i do get the impression you're a very uh, astute and thoughtful writer um i don't often hear a lot of comedy in your songs um i'm sure for you it's in there do you kind of church and state with your Love of comedy and 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 the serious uh, nature of your music. Yeah, I mean, I think the comedy kind of comes out in the videos and, and my personality. I'm I'm actually like a pretty big ham, and I I love comedy. But I think that that's what's so funny about me is you know my music is very heavy and sad, and when people meet me, they realize I'm like you know kind of always cracking jokes, and they're usually kind of like dad jokes anyway. But yeah, I think. It kind of comes from, yeah, like kind of the two forces being strangely aligned where it's like dark comedy, I think is is very, you know, brilliant commentary, especially the new Kids in the Hall. There's some sketches in the new Amazon series that are so on point. Oh, my God. Um, in terms it's of just dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> and it was so it was such a relief to see a show where I was like, yeah, yeah. OK, great. Um, <laughs> especially Mark McKinney. Some of the Mark McKinney sketches are so good. Um, and that Dave Foley um, sketch where he's in the bomb shelter. Amazing. Oh, yeah. The end of radio so, kind of. Sorry. I It reminds me almost exactly of a song by the band Shellac. And I, I think of that as the end of radio sketch because of that. But yes, for those who haven't seen it, he's basically, what, the last man alive and still trying to do a radio broadcast, like a cheesy radio broadcast is that yeah, a yeah with one one song yeah. yeah with the one the roller skate roller skates roller skate song roller i almost yeah, said roller Melanie. blades yeah sorry <laughs> i don't think she's singing about roller blades uh yeah no there yeah. you go no that's great I, I i and i appreciate that um that the comedy is your real life i get this sometimes where i'm like i wish the really funny person would put it in their art i have a friend who's a brilliant writer but she will only write serious plays and serious sort of uh, novel uh, specs or whatever you want to call them. And I'm like, why don't you just make it funny? Like, you're so funny. And there's like a fear of revealing the not being taken seriously. Do you know where I'm coming from? I do. I, th- I think people like their um, their cultural commentators. And they li- they like when people kind of stay in their lane. It's, it's hard yeah. when everybody is, you know, a very complex, real dynamic human. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I, 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 and I appreciate that as well. Listen, look at me. I'm serious. I'm earnest, but I'm trying to laugh, right? Yeah. Well, you're <laughs> the format. I think that you occupy is, is good for both. Yes, I think so. I think you might be right. Now, I was alluding to this song, so I want to ask you about it. The worst is done. 
I mean, I hear someone throughout this record, I hear someone pondering existential stuff, which I can't help but imagine was informed and perhaps exacerbated by living through a pandemic. The worst is done to me seems like maybe the the most obvious um, song that captures this current time. Uh, There's a one of the uh, is this a bridge or I don't know what the heck this is, but they say the worst is done and it's time to go out. Pick up from where we left off from. They say the worst is done, and it's time to find out what we've all become. There's that they, they, that authority figure that I pick up on here, uh, and, and and that follows what we were talking about earlier. The worst is done. Is that would you say that kind of that's a reflection of this particular moment in your life and ours? Yeah, definitely. I think there was kind of this idea of like, okay, pandemic's over, let's all go back to normal. But it's kind of like mm, I think the egg got cracked and yeah the the cat is out of the bag there that's the the cat one there you go now we've got um, it the cat is out of the bag the baby's in the bath water yeah i, yeah, I understand yeah, yeah. yeah so i think we're kind of we're in a zone right now where it's like we kind of know because of how globally intertwined we all are if one thing goes wrong we're kind of all gonna hit there's gonna be like these expansions and these contractions of our society based on these big events um, and that's that's bad for the economy and our souls yes. and all that. <laughs> but is that what I, given uh, the way you think about things, all I see is denial, like cycles of denial, because this is hard. I'm not trying to suggest that this isn't hard, but what I mean by that is we now know that various things are going to get worse in the winter. Various viruses, COVID, flu. Here in Canada, we have this really severe uh, respiratory virus now. Everything's getting more virulent and and like just awful. And what happens, it seems to me, I don't know if you have this in the States, because I think it's just a complete free-for-all. They say uh, in the summertime, we're getting rid of the masks. The mask mandates are gone. You can travel, you can do whatever you want. But like clockwork, the, some of us are like, but wait a minute. That's going to mean we don't have a good Christmas because everyone's going to be sick. If we just leave them on, we'll have a chance and no one listens. I know there's fear in that denial. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm speculating that you think what I think. Do you think it's denial? Why don't we, why are we learning from anything? I think that it kind of comes from like, if you look at other cultures that just wore masks all the time anyway, like in Asia and places where it's just more common, I think there's just more of a collective nature and I think we come from a very individualistic kind of westernized thought process where people don't do things for each other. Yes. Yes. And I know that sounds really harsh, but it's it's kind of built into the culture. Yes. And I think if pe- people are kind of more approaching it like, I don't mind if I get sick, I want to have my life versus, oh, I don't want to make somebody else sick. It's like everybody's just kind of thinking of themselves yeah. first versus the whole. And I just think that's so deeply ingrained in the culture that it's, it's, it's hard to like reverse without there being a great polarization, which is what we've seen in America with this kind of very deep schism with the mask people and the non-mask people where yes. it's like, it's kind of diabolical. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's impossible so I, I to coexist just, even it seems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I've, I've had a mask on and been bullied and I've gone into certain situations and felt a little awkward that I didn't wear my mask. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of yeah all over the place. Um, yeah. and I, yeah, I think it's just like, unfortunately the, the sentiment of, you know, the culture being very individualistic and, and kind of wanting to pretend 
that it's just you kind of fighting for your piece of the pie versus everybody in it together. Yeah. So as we ponder how these things inform this record, I think we've touched upon narcissism. We've touched upon existentialism. I suggested there was some autobiography here. I I hear and read in your lyrics a lot of heartbreak. The que- and then what we're talking about now, this lack of uh, galvanization about just coexisting and living together. I, I mean, that's something. That Those are some of the things I think are going on in this record. And I feel like you've corroborated <laughs> that as we've spoken. How do you possibly come up with a way to soundtrack these things in a way that puts them across it's such an ambitious sound uh, that you have that you've had for these last couple of records um can you talk a little bit about why you're drawn to this and i don't even want to characterize it i'd like you to do it because i hate to apply a genre signifier and you're like oh every goddamn person says this can you talk a little bit about the sound that you seem to be the most comfortable in as Wiseblood, and whether or not you see it shifting at some point. Um, and, and yeah, can you talk about that for this particular batch of songs? I kind of see it as like I, you know, Tin Pan Alley, you know, starting with like some of the greats. I love classical music and I love the evolution and the history of music. So when I go to write, I'm kind of writing, kind of taking bits and pieces from all different um, times. And I think that songwriters that did that really well, a lot of it was kind of in the seventies when they were kind of referencing really old stuff and really new stuff for the time. And so I think sometimes my stuff comes off maybe a little seventies because of that. But in reality, it's, it's kind of more about being influenced what they, by what they were influenced by. Um, and yeah, so I think I try not to be nostalgic about it. Like I try not to be like a dead, dead on retrofied kind of, archival version of something i always want to put a new modern spin on it but i do think that the nostalgia comes out just because of um the emotional quality and how you know songs kind of used to be written in such a way that it was kind of this melodic journey versus now where i think it's a little bit more about yeah kind of like a upbeat repetitive um loop right and and do you anticipate changing this course in any way like for those of us who heard the work you did with uh tim heidecker who i alluded to earlier on the uh fantastic record fear of death that was a bit that was that was different would you agree yeah yeah Yeah. i think that was um that was way more low-key i'm so (laughs) sorry so i i actually have another appointment oh Um, okay is it possible for you i'll put all this uh you're on the if it still exists you're on twitter you have a website i can link to all that stuff that's cool Uh, and people should know this record's out on sub pop if we can go out on a song uh from this wonderful new record can you pick one for us and, and tell us why you chose it i choose hearts aglow because it's the title track and because it's about falling in love in a very you know intense uncertain time and how that can really be like a beacon of light in the darkness all right let's hear that now this is hearts aglow from wise blood natalie this was a tremendous pleasure and an honor for me i i I hope you enjoyed yourself and i wish you the best luck in the future thanks again yeah thank you so much it was great
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. An unusually abrupt ending to a conversation, but uh, yeah, Natalie had somewhere else to go, and that's fine. I didn't know we didn't have uh, as much time as we thought. No one told me nothing. It's fine. It worked out. It was a good chat. I think I talk too much. That's okay. Sometimes that happens. It's a talk show. Eh, maybe I talk too much. Anyway, I really want to thank Natalie Maring of Wise Blood for appearing on this, the 733rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook. You can, as I'm speaking to you, you can continue to follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly at Vish Khanna. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Vish Khanna, which apparently isn't going anywhere. That's probably still happening. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly no- donation to sustain this podcast. That is the primary source of revenue that I get for all of this work that goes into this show each and every week, sometimes twice a week, hopefully no more than that. And it's a lot of work, but I like doing it. And like a lot of musicians, we just, you know, musicians, artists, we like doing the stuff we like doing. It is nice to get financial support. And that's, if you go to the Patreon, you become a patron supporter, it goes right to me, except for some kickback they get, but not that much. Now, six American dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content. Uh, you get episodes a little bit earlier than everybody else. Sometimes I'd go OT with my current guests. Sometimes I dig into my archives and find audio that I think you might find interesting from uh, my journalistic life that precedes this podcast. It's all there. And if also, if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. Again, patreon.com slash creative control. Thanks again to the excellent Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and order things right there on their website, blackbird.ca. Also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my dear friend Jim Guthrie, who I haven't spoken to in a little bit. I should probably call him. Maybe I'll do that after I finish saying this stuff. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Wise Blood. Natalie is clearly a brilliant person, much smarter uh, than I am, and I was trying to hang in there, but she is brilliant. I hope you'll check out the new Wise Blood record and subscribe to this podcast. 
follow it, tell your friends about it, spread the word. And uh, all of that helps me and means a lot. So thank you. I will talk to you very soon. Be well. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.